Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I know that over the years, many of you have seen the pictures and news clips of the wall that divides Berlin. But believe me, no American who sees firsthand the concrete and mortar, the guard posts, and machine gun towers, the dog runs, and the barbed wire can ever again take for granted his or her freedom or the precious gift that is America. That gift of freedom is actually the birthright of all humanity. And that's why, as I stood there, I urged the Soviet leader, Mr. Gorbachev, to send a new signal of openness to the world by tearing down that wall. The famous words of President Ronald Reagan, expressing a sentiment that we're all very familiar with, that the infamous regime in the East should inevitably give way to the freedoms of the West. But when it came down to it, when the Berlin Wall was indeed torn down and Germany changed forever, was it that simple to the people most closely touched by it? What is the legacy of this event in the eyes of those who lived in Germany at the time? We're going to find out. But first, we should take a step back and situate ourselves in the confusing twists and turns of Cold War history. On the 9th of November 1989, just over a month since anti-government protests in the East German cities of Dresden, Leipzig and East Berlin, the Berlin Wall that had symbolised the division of East and West came crumbling down. A nervous East German government spokesman had mistakenly announced during a press conference that citizens of the German Democratic Republic, that's East Germany, would be allowed to travel freely without restrictions, effective immediately. As the news spread, crowds of Berliners flocked to the city's major border crossings from both sides. East German border guards were overwhelmed by the unexpected throngs of excited citizens, and for a moment... It looked as if things might turn ugly. Fortunately for everyone, the unprepared border guards instead decided to open the gates and allow people to begin what was for many their first journey out of the GDR. The Iron Curtain had been well and truly pulled down. 33 years later to the day, you can still visit the ruins of parts of the Berlin Wall the remnant and rubble of the divide between East and West, socialism and capitalism. For this anniversary episode, I've got snapshots into what life was like on both sides of the wall and what it meant to people of different backgrounds, professions and worldviews. We have a Western diplomatic perspective describing what it was like to be acutely aware that every day peace in Europe was on a knife's edge. 
we hear the perspective of a West German who, along with his film crew, was torn between covering events and getting involved. I stood between those pillars which were illuminated and I looked up and there was the noise and the mauer is weg, the mauer is weg, the wall has fallen. And I suddenly broke into tears. We have the impressions of a now internationally acclaimed archaeologist who presents the events as they unfolded as she was then through the eyes of a young East German teenager. And the insights of an East German rocker and lead singer who describes what it was like to pursue a career in music in the GDR and the unified Germany that followed. You could smell the smell of revolution. I was, I was part of a revolution, I could say, and, and everybody was really excited and in a good mood and everyone could feel that something will change. You listen to Dan Snow's history. You might have noticed that we got a cool new look for the podcast. I've been gracefully aged in the portrait, so I'm totally relaxed about that. And today, today, folks, we're debuting our new theme music. We're messing about. I love this new music. It really emphasises the drama, the sense of the extraordinary in the moments that we talk about on this podcast. We'd love to know what you think. Let us know. Get in touch with us on the social medias. But in the meantime, let's take a trip back to a divided Berlin and one of the most important moments of the 20th century. T-minus 10, 9. First atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. 8, 7. God bless you all. God save the king. 5, 4. There can be three, no black-white unity till there is first some black unity. 1, 0. The desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. First up, we have James Bindenagel, or JD. He's a retired US ambassador. Over the last, well, several decades, he has undertaken military, diplomatic, and academic postings across East, West, and then United Germany. He was stationed in East Berlin as Deputy Chief of Mission at the US Embassy in 1989 and had a unique perspective on the diplomatic buildup and aftermath of this day. JD, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Dan, absolutely. How long were you in Berlin and Germany, and what was your job or your jobs there? Well, first of all, I came 50 years ago as an army officer for the 3rd Infantry Division during the Cold War. I came back as a diplomat and served four times in three Germanys. That would be West Germany, East Germany, United Germany, and then came back uh, now as a professor at Bonn University for the last eight years so what was your job in 1989? You served, in, as you said, in Berlin, East, West. What was your job in 89, just before the war came down? In 1989, I was the deputy ambassador. Richard Barclay was the ambassador. That was my job, to oversee the political and the economic reporting and run the embassy. So you're in East Berlin. Right. Did you feel change coming? So we all intellectually knew that there was change. We saw solidarity for the last 10 years coming in, and there was change blowing in the wind, but we didn't know exactly what was happening. But things started happening very rapidly from May 7th when there were municipal elections in Berlin, and they were challenged by people on the streets, and then there were demonstrations, and then there was the Tiananmen Square attack in China, in Beijing, on June 4th, and things became unraveled. So we... (laughs) I mean, everything was happening so fast and we couldn't keep up with it. What was your analysis of why the grip of those totalitarian states was weakening in those communist Eastern European countries? Well, it was absolutely critical that uh, the Soviet Union under Gorbachev was trying to make a change. 
as an American, I look at it from what Roosevelt was doing in his 30s to save capitalism. It's kind of a parallel to what Gorbachev was trying to do with his so-called restructuring, the perestroika and glasnost, openness, trying to save the Soviet Union and its system. But by doing so, underestimated the the willingness of people to go along with it. And the legitimacy always rests with the people. So when you have that kind of a change, you have a challenge to the existing government. That's really the dynamic that was happening. If you lose control of the people, then you don't have the backup that you need to keep your legitimacy based on the military. It must have been intoxicating visiting young organizers. And uh, and that was your job, right? You had to work out what was going on. Yeah, there, there was uh, actually the very beginning was with a friend of mine, Thomas Kruger, who I met in Berlin in May, May 6th, 1989. And, and he took me to a, a conspiratorial apartment where they had a mimeograph machine and they were going to do poll watching for the municipal elections. But that was the kind of excitement. And they were, they were very brave to do this, but they were committed to do that. And it was very exciting to see them being successful and not being crushed. You know, there was always a question of, would there be military intervention to put them down? You were a man whose job it was to do US interference from outside. Did you feel, were you actively contributing? No, actually, in the East German case, they were way ahead of us. We were running behind what they were doing. They, they had come out to the position where there were so many people fleeing. In the case of East Germany, they had no future. When you lose hope, it's not outside interference. It's the relationship that they have with their governments. What did you feel that night when you said you were on your way home? Did you go home or did you turn that car around and uh, join the crowd? No, I figured there was a television camera across the bridge. And so I said, it's on television. That's the best place to see what's happening. And sure enough, I went home. I called the ambassador. He was asleep, actually, just gone to bed. I said, Dick, you got to get up. This is happening. I called West Berlin. Harry Gilmore was our minister in West Berlin. And I said, Harry, I told you earlier that they're going to have visitors, but it looks like they're all coming tonight. This is amazing. Then I called the White House and the State Department Operations Center. Were you positive or did you, were you nervous checking out those Soviet troop concentrations in their barracks, worrying about the fact this could be still stamped out? So we weren't really always sure that Gorbachev's order that they would stay on their barracks was true. So we had to deal with issues like in that little town of Buch outside of Berlin there. Apparently the mayor had talked about moving a Soviet-era tank somewhere else. And of course the report came back that the Germans had attacked a Soviet tank. Such rumors are what we had to deal with. At one point we saw the Betriebskampfgruppen, they're like the National Guard, the people that were armed and came out on the streets. And then shortly after the East Germans had called them back. And so, yeah, we had to run errors and rumors down and see what was happening. If the Soviets or the East German government had tried to do a 56 or a 60, and, you know, and Hungary or Czechoslovakia in 68 and had started machine gunning people, what was your little uh, box? You know, you broke the glass and you took out the instructions from the box. Would it have been just to stand by and watch or were things different this time? Would the US have intervened more robustly? The real question would be whether or not the Soviets had actually attacked West Berlin where we had military forces, because that would then trigger NATO's Article 5. For us, we were only hoping that they'd go around us because we had no way to defend anything. 
so that the sad truth is, had the Soviets done what Putin no doubt hoped, you would have had to just stand by and watch this uprising stamped out. That's right. Do you now know? Have you gone back? Have you talked to senior Soviets in the military and politics? I'm sure you have. Have you have you chatted about what was the debate within that, or was it pretty clear they were always going to let East Germany go? No, there was no interest in letting East Germany go until the developments came to the point where Gorbachev couldn't afford it because he was also fighting with Honecker. Honecker was a Stalinist and did not want to give up. And Gorbachev wanted glasnost and perestroika. So they had an internal problem. And that was why in Leipzig, the local people sided with Gorbachev. And that's why people started cheering Gorbachev, especially in West Germany. But he was the one that kept his troops on the ground and didn't unleash them. Looking back, did it feel historic at the time? And looking back, do you think your feelings were justified? Oh, absolutely. There was no question it was historic. My whole life was Western. Germany was oriented for the West and the East was the East. And you were seeing it disintegrating. And as it disintegrated, uh, you only worried about the breakout of war. But then it turned to how you resolve this and the ability of the East Germans to host a fair and free election was really crucial. What are your reflections all these years later, looking back on having been privileged to witness history happening at first hand? It must be something you cherish. It is. I was 39 and, you know, it is the high point of our life. I've talked to some British diplomats who were in Berlin in 1989 and they feel that they were able to move the needle a bit. They feel they prevented potentially nasty events happening. Did you feel at any stage in your career as a diplomat that you, well, did you, did you help to avoid nuclear war or did... Does the individual matter in history? The individual does matter. And we can say when you're a soldier and you're on the blinds with other 368,000, that's a small effort you can make. But then when you're sitting there in East Germany with just a few people, you can make a lot of difference. Thank you very much. What a place to end it. Uh, Ambassador, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Dan, my pleasure and good luck. Some really unique insights there into what was going on behind the scenes at the very top of international diplomacy. But of course, for most people, the fall of the Berlin Wall wasn't so much a culmination of diplomatic events, but instead it was a spontaneous, sometimes terrifying occurrence that fundamentally changed their lives forever. Next, I'll be speaking to West German Clifford Fullerton, who was at the time a recent graduate working for ABC News. Cliff and his film crew were right there in the fray at the Brandenburg Gate, and he joins us now Tell us how that day played out for him. Cliff, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. What was it like growing up in a divided Germany? Was it scary? Was it sad? Well, I was born in Berlin and I moved back in the mid-80s to study here. And uh, being in Berlin in the 80s as a student was extremely exciting. It was a, a vibrant city with a unique atmosphere, Berlin being a uh, Western city in the middle of the East during the Cold War, and it was surrounded by a border, a lethal border, which made Berlin basically an island. So it was exciting. Did you sort of believe that the Cold War would go hot and the flashpoint might be Berlin? Was that a scary thing? Not really. There was always this feeling that, uh, of course, West Berlin was a sort of front in the East, but we never actually did believe that the Cold War would turn hot. And Tell me about the day of days. You were an extraordinary witness because you were working there. Your job was to be there and find out what was going on. So tell us what you saw. Well, I had uh, just finished an internship with ABC News in Frankfurt. ABC is one of the major networks in the US. And they came to Berlin because 
the ongoing story was East German refugees at that time. Due to Glasnost, the Iron Curtain had begun to partially open and East Germans started fleeing through other countries, mainly Hungary. And ABC News said, hey, Cliff, would you like to work for us for a couple of days? And I said, yeah, sure, great. So they assigned me to a camera team and sent us to East Berlin. November 9th, 1989 was basically my first day on the job. On our schedule, we had a press conference for the late afternoon. The cameraman wasn't too fond of having to go to a press conference, but I was rather excited. It was my first press conference. The room was pretty crowded with Glasnost, the refugees and everything. I spotted Tom Brokaw was the anchor for NBC News, our competitor. So I took a seat somewhere behind him just to see how he would react. Press conference started and it was boring. Günter Schabowski of the Politburo. The question here, a statement there. This went on and on. The press conference was scheduled for an hour. And uh, towards the end, Schabowski asked, any more questions? One reporter asked about travel restrictions for GDR citizens. Schabowski was dazzled for a moment and talked about decisions the government had made that day that would ease travel. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a piece of paper. He started mumbling something about, oh, I thought you knew. He then read out that uh, travel restrictions are lifted and that citizens of the GDR would be free to cross the borders. I remember I heard what he had just said, and I considered that to be pretty important news. And I got a bit nervous, but uh, as I looked around, most of the journalists were very calm. Tom Brokaw was one of the few journalists who actually realized what had just been said. And he turned to his colleagues and said, this is a real story. Now, back in the 80s, camera equipment was huge. Broadcast cameras had tapes the size of paper books with 20 minutes worth of tape, battery packs the size of bricks. And of course, there was no internet. So what I had to do is take all the tapes we had shot that day and bring them to our office in the West. I told the camera team we would meet back at the hotel and uh, took off by car. Nowadays, it would be a 15-minute drive from one location to the other, but back then it meant I had to leave one country and enter another one through certain high-security border stations, in this case, Checkpoint Charlie. While going through all procedures, I had the radio on and I heard the first uh, news flashes that came. The stations also weren't too certain what the announcement actually meant, but the longer I drove, the more interpretations I heard. By the time I arrived at the office in the West, the story had really started to unfold. Everyone uh, you met was like, wow, awesome, incredible. So I dropped off the tapes, took some fresh ones and headed back. And the newscasters became more and more self-secure in announcing that the borders are open again. I crossed Checkpoint Charlie again and drove to the hotel to meet the camera crew, but I didn't find them. The 80s, no mobiles, I couldn't call them. So I got back into the car and drove to one of the main border stations, Bornholm Ostrasse. By the time I arrived there, the streets leading to the border were already pretty crowded and it seemed like there was a lot of tension back there. Floodlights in the dark, a lot of nervous people. The scenery added to that tension, but something was about to happen. I got nervous again. I had to find my team, my camera team. I drove back to the hotel, banged at the door of the cameraman's room, and he actually opened. And I yelled at him, the wall has fallen. Come on, grab your stuff. We have to go. Like, 
really now he looked at me to find out if I was drunk or on drugs, but uh, he quickly realized that there had to be a reason for my excitement. And while he grabbed his equipment, I uh, got hold of a sound man. We got uh, into the car and drove down the street to Brandenburg Gate, which was pretty close to the hotel. The scenery was incredibly spooky then. Looking from the east, the wall was dark, but there were floodlights on the other side and we could hear chanting. Many people yelling and singing, die Mauer ist weg, die Mauer ist weg, the wall is gone. At that point, some of those people started to climb the wall. We're talking about the wall, the symbol of the Iron Curtain. Many people had lost their lives trying to cross that wall to the west, and now people started climbing it. Those armed guards standing there were the problem. The cameraman, who was uh, actually pretty experienced and had worked in war zones, looked at us and said, we're going over there. I looked at him and said, uh, wait a minute, uh, you know that this is the death strip and you know why it is called the death strip? And I pointed to the soldiers and he said, Cliff, don't worry, I'll turn on the camera light and we will walk that way slowly. And if anyone over there has a problem with that, they'll let us know. And that is what we did. He turned on the camera light, carefully stepped over the fence, followed by the sound man, and very reluctantly followed by me. We walked towards the wall where the singing and shouting was coming from and the border guards did nothing to stop us. They were too overwhelmed with the situation and clearly had no plan or orders. This was something they were not trained for, definitely. Now, as we walked, there was this one moment where we passed Brandenburg Gate. I stood between those pillars which were illuminated and I looked up and there was the noise and die Mauer ist weg, die Mauer ist weg, the wall has fallen. And I suddenly broke into tears. Now, my grandfather had often told me about war times in Berlin and my mother lived there in the post-war times and when the wall was built. And now I was standing on the death strip underneath Brandenburg Gate while people were chanting, the wall is gone. But uh, there wasn't too much time for emotion. I had to function, pretty much. The camera team was frantically filming the whole time. Meanwhile, people had started not only to climb up the wall from the west, but to jump down into the east, into East Berlin. I was pretty nervous. There were soldiers there who basically had the orders to shoot if the border is violated. And this was a massive violation of the border. The situation became pretty unpredictable. Would they just stand by watching people climb over the wall with someone open fire. And we were on the eastern side, not knowing what would happen. I began storing all 20-minute tapes we had shot, at first underneath my sweater. And when there were more, I brought them to the car and I hid those tapes in various places because I was afraid something might happen. People would try to confiscate our camera or equipment. And then I suddenly saw a friend a school friend. He had just climbed the wall with his girlfriend and there they stood. And there was my chance to get the tapes across to the West. After exchanging a few words, I asked them if they could climb back over the wall with the tapes, drop them off and tell them that we agreed on a hundred Deutschmarks for the job. And that's what they did. And it worked. We were still there and the situation was unpredictable. And uh, suddenly there was movement among the soldiers. Obviously, 
they had received some sort of orders. And indeed, suddenly there was a voice coming through a loudspeaker. For your own safety, please leave the place at Brandenburg Gate. Soldiers moved in and began positioning along the wall. So, oh, what was going to happen now? What we didn't know at this time was the other border crossings had already lost control of the situation. At Bornholmostrasse, so many people had gathered demanding to pass. There was one guy in charge that night, and with increasing pressure, he had no orders and was not able to reach any superiors. He at one point decided to just open that border post, and people started flooding from the east to the west. Meanwhile, the guards at Brandenburg Gate only had one intention, clearing that area and prevent people from climbing the wall. So they brought in a water cannon. Thank goodness the only thing fired that night was water. So the people climbed back over. The soldiers were gaining control of the situation. And there was one point where they were back in charge. Brandenburg Gate was sealed off. And we were now on the other side of that little fence. So that was... Uh, a very strange, very, very strange night. And I hadn't realized what that would mean for the future of reunification and everything that would come. Looking back now, is it very special to have been there, that hinge point of history? It was one of the moments of my life that I will always remember. Being there at the press conference, a scene that you always see on TV every year regularly, and knowing that I was there at the press conference and also knowing that I was there under Brandenburg Gate when it all happened. That was an emotional night. That was the night of my life, more or less. This is Dan Snow's History Hit. More after this. A hundred years ago, one of history's greatest discoveries ever was made in the Valley of the Kings. The tomb of Tutankhamun was found intact with thousands of treasures. And this month on The Ancients from History Hit, we're exploring how a discovery transformed a boy king from minor Egyptian monarch into immortalized ancient ruler. Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Thursday on The Ancients from History Hit as we delve into the life and legacy of Tutankhamun, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A big thank you to Cliff Fullerton, giving us a play-by-play of events as they unfold on the ground, in the thick of it, at the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, Joining us now is Daniela Rosnow. She's a friend of the podcast. She's a world-class Egyptologist and archaeologist. In 1989, Daniela was a young teenager growing up just outside East Berlin. And she joins us to explain how significant this event was to her life and the lives of other East Berliners. Daniela, thanks for coming on the pod. Yes, hello. It's nice to be with you here. (laughs) So... You grew up in socialist East Germany. Tell me, what was that like? Well, it was an experience that obviously very much shaped me and it had good and bad sides to it. Good sides where I had quite a protected childhood. But yeah, it had bad sides as well, of course. Like the fact that you couldn't leave the country, for instance. As a child, what did you notice about the sort of authoritarian government intruding into your life, not being able to travel? Were there other things that struck you as a young person? Well, no, because I mean, most of the time, I think in general, parents try to keep this away from children, at least until a certain age when it was necessary to talk about it. You learned Russian in school, presumably? Oh, yeah, we all had to learn Russian. I started learning Russian when I was eight. And what about how old were you when the wall fell? I had just turned 13 when the wall fell. And I remember the night, or more to the point, the days after very well. Were you politically aware at 13? Were you aware of the changes going on around you in Eastern Europe in the build-up to that? Yes. I mean, obviously, we had followed this very closely on the television for many, many months, and we saw what was happening in Hungary. But it was still a surprise when it really happened. Were your family and your network community, was it largely excited about what was going on, or was there nervousness? I, I think, especially in the beginning, everyone was really, really excited. My family had a certain background of, you know, not always being extremely confirmed to the system. So it was definitely perceived as something very positive in my family. So there was excitement in the days leading up to it? Yes, but more to the point in the days just after the wall came down, obviously, because until the very last second, you couldn't expect this to happen. And as we know now, it all was an accident, really. It was never planned like this. Was there a trigger? Was there a moment that when you heard, and what was that? Was it hearing about the travel ban being lifted? Was it hearing about people on the wall? What was your moment of realisation? I mean, actually, you know, this all happened on a Thursday night. And strangely, on that evening, my parents were out and I didn't even watch the news. So I went to bed without realising what was going on around me. Um, And then the next morning, my parents had left and were at work as well. And I was on my own. And when I turned on the television, obviously, I saw what had happened last night in Berlin and saw people on the wall. And although I was only 13, it was very clear to me from the beginning that this is something huge happening that could potentially change my life forever. 
Although in the first days, of course, we couldn't be sure that, you know, this whole decision wouldn't be returned. Was the action in Berlin or was it all along the wall? Were there scenes going on outside the city as well? What was your first interaction with what was going on physically? Well, I think it was mainly going on in Berlin. So we lived about an hour away from Berlin. And so on that Friday, I only saw things on television. But of course, everyone wanted to be in Berlin because that's where the wall born, where you wanted to be and go to the West End side. So everyone was basically flooding to Berlin. And me and my parents did this on a Saturday because we didn't expect the situation to last. We didn't trust that. So we decided to try it on the first possible day on that Saturday and crossed the Oberbaumbrücke to West Berlin. But that's quite dramatic, accepting that you might have got stuck there. So you potentially you, you left your life behind or... or... No, no, it was very clear that you were always allowed to go back, obviously. So that was never a danger. Okay. <laughs> but I personally, I just found it more dangerous to lose my parents because there were obviously thousands of people. And especially when you have these small checkpoints, or in my case, a bridge, you have to make sure not to lose your parents because obviously you're just a child. <laughs> and so there was a big crush. Was it quite intimidating, quite scary for you? No, not necessarily scary. Obviously, I wanted to be on my parents' hand, not to lose them, but everyone was actually really excited. And we just wanted to see how it looks like on the other side. And then, at least for my family, and then just go back home. Oh, okay. So it was just a fun opportunity, a sightseeing trip. Yes, of course, we really wanted to see the other side. Of course, we also wanted to buy certain things because... You know, we were craving for nice chocolate or it was the first time I ever bought and ate a yogurt that tasted of, of, of maracuya, of passion fruit. We didn't have these things. I still remember every person crossing the border, we got a so-called um, Willkommensgeld, welcoming money, which was 100 mark per person. And I remember we spent 70 of them on chocolate and sweets alone and Coca-Cola because <laughs> that was something we never had and and we really wanted to try. And do you remember, what were the scenes? Do you remember, I mean, were your parents emotional? Did they see friends, family that they hadn't seen? Was there anything? No, we didn't have family in West Berlin. And obviously at this point, there was no way you could go anywhere else to Western Germany on like the regular border. We had family in Western Germany but not in West Berlin. No, it was more emotional. My mom really wanted to go to the Gedächtniskirche. So that's this memorial church close to Zoo Station and the Zoological Garden, which was in ruins. Of course, you know, it was a ruin from the Second World War. And my mom wanted to go there. But it was all, I think everyone was genuinely excited and very, very positive about it. We were welcome. You know, no one hugged us, but you were metaphorically speaking, welcome with open arms. What was your impression as a kid? I mean, apart from all the chocolate and sweets, did it feel like a different world or did it feel recognisable? It was, of course, very much a different world. It, it looked very different. It smelled very different. But, I mean, also because my family, we lived very close to Berlin, we could receive Western television. So we kind of knew what it looked like, in contrast maybe to some people living in more remote areas. What's your sense now, looking back on the legacy of it? There is no doubt about it for me that this is the single most important event that happened in my life and the best thing that happened in my life. It has completely changed my life and gave me the opportunity 
to do what I want in life. I mean, you know, two massive aspects of living in the GDR were, of course, that you were not really allowed to leave the country unless maybe, you know, for a short holiday to another socialist country. And the other big thing was that you couldn't necessarily freely choose your profession if, let's say, you wanted to study, which was the case for me. It would have been extremely difficult for me to study anything, let alone Egyptology, what I eventually ended up studying. Unlike perhaps to foreign observers, we think the reunification, that's all done and dusted. In fact, the story is more complicated. There's still deep division and the legacies of the partition are still very much present. It is in certain regions, and I think it will still take a while, but I'm quite hopeful that I belong to the last generation of people who still really, really remember. You know, 13 is not a child. You have a proper memory. But probably everyone who was five at the time won't really remember the division anymore. And so I hope, let's say with my generation gone, hopefully there won't be, you know, a division in people's head anymore. Daniela Rossenau there giving us a really moving and personal look into the world of her youth and the transition to the Germany that we all now know. Finally, we're joined by Tobias Kunzel, a German composer, musician, and one of the lead singers for the popular German band Die Prinzen. Tobias grew up in Leipzig, and by 1989, he was a committed rocker. He was performing at a gig as the wall came down. Tobias joins us to tell us about life in the GDR for a musician and what its collapse meant for East Germans like him. Tobias, how did you access Western music from behind the wall? <laughs> Interesting question. In some regions of the GDR, you could reach uh, the radio stations from West Germany. If you're in the south of the GDR, you could reach the Bavarian radio. In Berlin, of course, you could reach the, the West Berlin stations. In the north, you could reach the Hamburg and um, Hanover stations. So it was accessible. And the East German radio stations also played West music. They played Deep Purple stuff and the Rolling Stones and all the popular hits from West Germany. But there was a rule. They had to play 60% of uh, music which came from socialist countries, including the GDR, and 40% have been allowed to play of uh, West music, of British, American and West German music, except the enemies of the politics, you know, of course. And as a young rocker, was this... Was it, did you feel that lack of freedom? Was that with the frustrations? I think we were born with the, with the scissors in our minds. You know, <laughs> we knew exactly how far we could go if we want to stay there and if we want to do our jobs. There are a lot of bands have been forbidden because of the lyrics. There was a jury when you started playing music and found a band. You had to play in front of a jury, and they decided if you're allowed to go on stage or not, and you have to show them the lyrics. They didn't listen so much <laughs> to the music. They had to read the German lyrics you wrote, and if they have been okay and uh, not too hard against uh, the government, you've been allowed to go on stage and play. It seems crazy. What do you remember about when things started to change? All changes come slowly, you know. It's not to say from tomorrow it will change. I think our band, Armour and the Kids, have been one of the first bands who've been allowed to be a little more edgy and could say things directly. And that's something to do with this new German wave, with the new wave stuff, because the lyrics became very straight and not as poetic anymore as they used to be in the 70s in the GDR. And so people 
became more brave and then, then tried to say things louder and louder until they went to demonstrations and tried to change the whole system. But most people didn't want to be a part of West Germany, to be honest. Most people wanted to create a new state, a new country, a new East German country with a democratic, a real democratic country. And then, you know the history, then we became a part of West Germany and now we are complete Germany. I think it's good. It's good for me and it's good for all. But uh, the the main thought wasn't to be... Uh, a part of West Germany, the main reason was to create something new, something real democratic, with a real democratic chosen government. Where were you when the wall came down? <laughs> I was playing a gig with my band, actually, with Armory Kids, and um, it was in a student's club, and you could smell the smell of revolution. I was, I was part of a revolution, I could say, and, and everybody was really excited and in a good mood, and everyone could feel that something will change. And we played a gig in this night and no one knew what, what happened. And I came back home and my wife said, the telly was on, and she said, look, now the wall is open. I said, oh, <laughs> that's great. Next day we went to the town hall and get the stamp in our passports. And then we went off to West Germany just to, to look how it, <laughs> how it looks. And the funny thing is, when I arrived in West Germany, I was I thought I was really cool looking, you know, I had purple trousers and my blonde haircut. And then I was, was walking through this little city and two children came and they asked me where my Trabant, where I do park my Trabant. They saw I'm from East Germany. I must come from East Germany. I don't know why they why they realized it, but I must have been looking like a typical East German boy. And what changed for you? Was it was it liberating being able to go to the West? What changed after that wall came down? Um, musically, it was really hard for us because suddenly no one was interested in East German bands anymore. They wanted to see the West German bands. And all crap bands from West Germany came over and played gigs for sold-out <laughs> venues. And it took a couple of years until the East German people realized that not all what came from West Germany <laughs> was as good as they expected or as seemed to be. And so the, the East German bands came back. But it was a hard time for us. And I was thinking about uh, quit the job and do something totally different. But uh, my wife, again, she said to me, you know, our children should know you how you are. You're a musician, you're a creative guy, and you're not a, you're not a used car dealer. You are just a musician, and you should stay a musician. So I, I kept on fighting, and uh, yeah, I couldn't make it. Some people we've been hearing, the older people were a bit nervous about the wall coming down, but for you, it was a positive thing. Yeah, I was young enough. I was young enough and I was successful in East Germany, but not too successful. I wasn't burned, you know. There was known, but we, we haven't been so close to the government. I don't know what I mean. We didn't have this passport where we could, could go anywhere we want. And so uh, it was easier for us to restart after the wall came down. Some of the established musicians had a really, really hard time the, the first five, six, seven years after the war came down. I became a member of an a cappella group, Die Prinzen. We recorded our first album in 1991 in Hamburg with a very famous producer, Annette Humpe. This album it was released, I think, in June. The first single came in May. It was in a, somewhere in the 40s in the charts, and then we had a top 10 hit, the next one, and then it went by itself. It was really successful. So it was, we've been really lucky 
that it happened to us, but it was not usual for every German musician. Just very talented. That's it. <laughs> thank you. you. If you say this, okay, thank you very much. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe a little talented, but we had the right songs at the right time and we've been at the right place. Everyone that I've talked to says that when the wall came down, visiting the West, it felt like a festival. It felt like a party. It was it was pretty rock and roll in, in a way. Was it a very special time, those days, those weeks following the, the wall coming down? Of course. And uh, I think for East Germans, of course, it was a big party. It was a big moment of freedom. We felt like uh, all the chains have been taken from us and we felt really free and was really great to go anywhere, to say everything, to make every joke which is possible and felt really, really like freedom for East German people. I don't know how the West German people think about it. That maybe the people in Berlin do because it was the divided city. You can't imagine London just split in two parts in East London and West London and the East London people are not allowed to go to West London. <laughs> you can't imagine this, but it was like this. The West Berlin people haven't been allowed to go to East Berlin and the East Berlin people haven't been allowed to go to West Berlin without uh, permission. So it was really, really a great moment to see that everything's possible now. Everything seemed to be possible. The truth came a little later when you saw that it's not so easy to be successful in the capitalist world. Tobias Kunzelau, with a truly unique perspective on what it was like to be a musician in the GDR and the united Germany that followed. The fall of the Berlin Wall is one of those great historical events that encapsulates really a fundamental change in the course of history. But for so many of us, it remains something that we read about in books or see on the news. It's so hard to get a tangible sense for its significance to the individual, to understand exactly how multifaceted something like this can be. Which is why we're so grateful to our guests for bringing it to life in such a personal way. You've been listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. This episode was produced by James Hickman and mixed by Dougal Patmore. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.